I've had conversations with folks that are, you know, 50 plus million dollar net worth who I had to have conversations with saying, you're going to be baked in a few years. We have to change something now while we still can. So it's crazy. That's crazy to hear, right? Someone that has a net worth of that size that's going, you know, on the path to, to doing it all down um, for, for, any, for any reason, right? And so, you know, being able to figure out ways to navigate that, you know, having someone, like I said, the younger folks, you know, start their business, figure it out, and then watch them grow throughout the years and sell that business, it, it, that's awesome. Um, to be able to work with our clients' kids, you know, as as they get older and become adults, or as our clients, you know, unfortunately pass off, and then we kind of work with, with, with their kids that they're on. I mean, really taking care of that a second and third generation is, is awesome. It's a lot of fun. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today we have a special episode with Mike Mess. Mike Mess is someone who worked for Goldman Sachs for 10 years, then launched his own private wealth management company five years ago. We're coming up on five years. So just to give our audience a little bit of an idea, Mike, you manage money for people that are fairly successful, right? Give us an idea of what you do. That's correct. That's correct. Thanks for having me on, Matt. This is this is great to spend some time with you and, and connect. Um, yeah, so we, we work with uh, a host of different folks. The uh, common denominator is that, you know, they're all private families and all have uh, quite a bit of success and wealth and interesting things going on in their life, um, whether they're, you know, the, the, the corporate uh, the corporate executives that have done it for a long time or startup guys who built something from the ground up and, uh, and gone from there to, you know, our real estate folks um, that, you know, built, uh, you know, built empires from scratch, um, but all, all kinds of interesting folks that we work with across the spectrum. Cool. Awesome. Well, we'll tie back into that much later in the episode. The reason we're hopping on this call is I want to talk about SVB and what's going on in banking. And I know you're going to have an inside scoop uh, with all your financial knowledge. So take us in to what happened with the Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and is this limited to them or is this going to be much bigger? You know, hopefully it's limited. It's got the potential to be limited. I think that's the best way we can phrase it right now. Everything There's new information coming out minute by minute as you and everyone else is sort of watching and you know, being concerned about their banking relationships, but it also does have the potential to to have some knockoff effects, more so in the banking industry, a lot more so than any other company out there that goes belly up for whatever sorts of reasons, right? The, the banking industry is so dependent on each other. It's an interconnected network. You, you can't really have just one failure, one sort of event happen without there being spillover effects. That said, um, you saw over the weekend, the FDIC, the Treasury came over and made some announcements. Other banks have been, been infusing capital into, into some of the smaller regional banks. So there's been a lot of good things happening to, to help support depositors. Um, very different than the scenario of 2007, where we came and backstopped you know, the, the equity holders of these banks in addition to, to the, the depositors and things of that nature. But I mean, basically what happened here was sort of a perfect storm of just blatant mismanagement by you know by the executives of svb they just made a poor poor investment decision we can get into that alongside then stoking fear and then you know they probably would have survived it had the depositors not all gotten spooked and pulled money out so they had they had poor investment decision their, their balance sheet was at risk and then to pour more gasoline onto that fire all the depositors pulled money out and that was the, that was the end of the bank and within you know a 24-hour period effectively yeah so essentially, they made a bad decision and they compounded it by maybe a bad PR message. Can you take us into a little bit of specifics? What, what specifically was the mistakes they made in the communication, the way that they spooked uh, their investors? Yeah, I'm going to try not take you too far down the rabbit hole of technicals of how, how banks work. Um, but you know, I think there's this sort of misunderstanding of banks out there across Main Street. Um, and even those that are in the industry, you know, kind of people think it's it's a bank, I should put my money in there and be able to get it out, which is absolutely the case. However, not all banks are made equal. Um, they serve different populations, different customers, different geographies, different industries. Their balance sheets look different, both in size and makeup. Um, you know, some of them are great at underwriting, some of them are terrible. They kind of cinch up and, and loosen up on certain things, depending on what they want their, their business makeup to look at. Prime example is a few years ago, banks couldn't lend out quick enough, right? Now they don't want to lend. They just want deposits. So th that all changed as the interest rate world changed. And so banks kind of maneuver and, and morph into that. Um, so, you know, looking at that, a couple things. <clears throat> One is you, whenever kind of assessing a bank, 
you want to look at just their general size, right? And ultimately what your goals are with that bank. Are you looking to take loans out, be a depositor? Um, what's your time frame? What's the size of it? Am I a company that needs to drop a hundred million dollars in um, for operating or whatever it is? Some of the banks that, that uh, or some of the companies that SVB served, right? Or am I, you know, uh, you know, just a private, you know, am I John Smith down the street that needs to throw a hundred thousand dollars of savings? Um, in, into a bank. Those are very different scenarios, right? And you need to do your due diligence a little bit differently. So looking at the size of the bank, looking at the growth of the deposits, but ultimately kind of what happened here is this was not um, sort of, this was not a credit risk issue of the bank, meaning they didn't have risky assets necessarily um, in, in terms of what took them down. They were, it was U.S. Treasuries. So they, they made a mistake and they bought U.S. Treasuries, which was high credit. However, they bought 10-year duration um, bonds. And that was the problem. So it was a mismatching of that liability from that. So they had short-term obligations to meet daily, monthly, six months, a year out. And then they were locked and loaded into these, these big amounts from, you know, from 10-year treasuries. That also, that all started brewing, you know, right when COVID hit. So there was an unprecedented amount of liquidity that came into the banking system when the U.S. government was just flushing money, helicopter money out everywhere into the system a lot of it never left the banks um, or it came back into the banks because people said, okay, great. I just got a PPP loan of X amount. I'm just going to shove it back in the bank and it's free money, blah, blah, blah. Right. So huge amounts. And you can look at um, SEB and any bank's balance sheet, huge spikes, you know, over the past couple of years following COVID, they had to do something with it. They had to make loans with it, buy treasuries, assets, do something productive with it. And so that's where the problem started. They started buying the wrong sort of assets and they took on duration risk instead of you know, looking at that and trying to match their liabilities a little bit more. Um, I think also they serve a little bit more of a risky population than perhaps, you know, your your community mechanics bank somewhere else, right? Um, they were serving a risky population. I'd almost argue that they weren't really even a bank in turn, even more so than sort of a startup incubator. Um, but that's probably up for debate and I'll probably rub a few people the wrong way. But, um, you know, those are some things to think about. So from that duration risk, you know, all it had to do was a small move in interest rates to go up to kind of tank those portfolios. And that's what we saw happen. The Fed certainly has a role in this, right? However, kind of, and I'm going to use a word that, you know, is, is, is pretty charged, but kind of gross negligence from the banker's perspective. These are smart guys who know this space. This isn't, you know, someone who's just buying a bond for the first time or running a bank for the first time. I mean, they should have absolutely known the risk out there, how to manage it, and they just made a giant misstep there. Um, I think some of the knockoff effects now or what happens with the Fed, right? We've been getting a lot of questions in on does the Fed stop raising rates? Do they kind of hit the pause button for a little bit or not? We're, we're, you know, there's calls going both ways on that. We'll see what ultimately happens. But I think depending on how severe or how, how much other carnage we're going to see with other banks is going to determine that in the next you know, handful of days and a couple of weeks. I think the Fed would rather have take a pause button on rate on raising rates further right? Let inflation run a little bit hotter for a short period of time versus have more, more collapsing in the bank. That's something that they can't, they can't afford to do. Yeah. Because I mean, then it could be pandemonium in the sense that it's like if, if two and three and four start collapsing, then yeah. So, so talk to me about the short-term, long-term risk. Like what is the incentive for a bank to invest in longer-term bombs? Do they get better, better returns if they do so? Um, I, ideally, yes. However, I'm going to, you know, we're looking at what we call the yield curve, right? So what is a one-year bond or treasury yielding versus a five-year, a 10-year, and so on and so forth. In a normal world, you should get paid more as an investor to take on those incremental years of risk. We're not in that world right now. In fact, today, the yield curve is completely inverted. So we can buy a six-month treasury and get, call it 5%, or we can buy a 10-year treasury and get 3-ish percent. That's that's crazy, right? So you're actually getting penalized for taking that, that risk. And so that's, that's kind of where we are. We, we weren't necessarily this severely inverted back when they were making these investments. However, the yield curve was basically flat at all time lows when they did this. So they were buying, you know, 10 year treasuries, I call it 2% kind of all time lows. They weren't really getting paid any, any additional increment for taking on that risk versus buying a six month or a one year, um, you know, type of instrument to really match their liabilities. So you should get paid more. They, the, the, the fixed income world has really been so wonky ever since you know, COVID hit and everything kind of went sideways. Um, so 
Hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, and this is why I could see why you're saying maybe this is gross negligence. Like, why take on a 10-year scenario when you could take on a six-month scenario and there's not much risk difference, right? My understanding of how these bonds work is essentially if you pull out any time during the term, you're kind of open to the volatility of what's going on. But if you wait till it holds to maturity, then you get a specified return. Is that is that fair to say? That's correct. And that's kind of what, what I was alluding to with my comment. If they were able to keep their depositors there, um, and they were trying to raise some cash and other things would ultimately spook people, but they, they could have lived this out. They just couldn't, they couldn't wait it out. Right. Because they had more, more liabilities coming due people taking their, their funds out, but theoretically they could have, they could have survived. It was just a massive mismatch on timing. Yeah. And then obviously yeah. the shorter bonds would have been able to go to maturity and so on and so forth. So the, the ripple effects essentially, is it only psychological? Is that the main thing that would cause us to go in that direction or is, is there other factors at play? Uh, it's depends on what sort of skeletons are in some of these other banks. Um, right now I'd say it's mostly psychological. Um, the banking system is, it's all psychological and trust. Um, there's a little bit of margin of economics that are tied to all this, right? But ultimately that doesn't matter if you have all of your depositors pulling out and saying, forget it. And then what do they do, right? They're not, they're not walking out with greenbacks in their hand, walking down the sidewalk, figuring out where to go. They're transferring it somewhere else. So now the decision is, you know, which, which bank are they moving into? Um, I, you know, this is, this is some conjecture, but most of the conversations I've been in of folks pulling, pulling large amounts of, of sums out and moving it, they've been going to the, um, you know, to the mega banks, um, they've got different capital requirements than some of these other kind of regional banks had that they were able to take on a little bit more risk. So that seems to be where people are going, even though they may lack on service or something else that, that, that they presumably liked at their smaller bank, they're, they're fleeing towards the safety of, you know, the capital, the, the, the higher capital requirements at the, uh, at the big banks. Yeah. And maybe banks that have a different distribution of depositors, wherein a run on the bank is going to be a lot less likely because there's way more spread between who has what in the accounts. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because uh, Silicon Valley bank, they kind of had many of their clients captive that had exclusivity agreements that Silicon Valley bank had them sign. So they couldn't go anywhere for banking. And, you know, I haven't done too much digging into this, but presumably that was from their early days as a startup, right? Where they were, they were banked by SVB. Um, and so those, those guys were locked in, uh, and that's kind of almost predatory to be honest. I think there's going to be, I would imagine there's going to be litigation around that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's nice that, you know, the feds have stepped in and are going to, it sounds like make a lot of these guys whole. Um, so how does this impact you? I mean, you have a lot of clients that have a lot of, you know, wealth. What's your advice to them? I'm sure you're getting calls and texts and, you know, there's probably a little bit of craziness going on. How are you responding to that? Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, it, we've had a ton of conversations, um, you know, kind of going Thursday, Friday into the weekend. And, and here we are with Tuesday. Um, and it really depends, I think, on the audience and, and who I'm talking to, meaning we've had everything from clients who've had payroll run through there, which they know they're going to be fine from a backstop. However, there's friction on just getting people paid. Right. Um, that's not a great position that doesn't, you know, uh, encourage trust through, throughout your throughout your ranks. Um, we've had folks that have had, you know, uh, accounts that have, that have been under the FDIC insurance limits. And so they're fine. They're just annoyed, but they're fine to places that had big, big amounts that, that were out there. You know, I think most of the conversations are, are kind of centered around is, what's the direct exposure and who, it, who is that personal organization that has that direct exposure to then, you know, where we sit in our role as investment advisor to, to many of these folks, right. In terms of, do we have any equity exposure directly to those people? Where do they have further exposure in their companies and all that? Um, we just did, we just looked at this across, across our firm and we were well positioned for this. We've kind of been out of the financial industry for a long time because it just, it hasn't made sense. So I think we had, you know, maybe 1% exposure across our, our, our whole book to all the financials as a, as a whole sector. Um, which is, which is minuscule. So, um, you know, it, it's really, I think the conversations have been more educating people on what happens, trying to not give the all clear, because there is no all clear right now that, that everything is, is going to be settled, but to give some level of, of calm out there, um, to not create this, this further spread of people lining up at their banks and pulling funds and trying to do something with it. So there's that. And then also with kind of where rates are having people look at the alternatives, right? If someone does have 
large amounts that they don't really need for operating their, their business or operating their life, start looking at other instruments to buy. Why do you, why are you going to throw it in the bank and let them go buy treasuries? Why don't you just go do it on your own? Um, and look at some of those alternatives that are actually yielding something now that weren't doing that 12 and 24 months ago. So having people be a little, a little more thoughtful there. Yeah. And you were mentioning 5% return on six months. So, I mean, essentially if you can part with your cash for six months, you can make 5% on it. That's really, really not bad. I mean, particularly, I mean, that's a 10% return and practically guarantee that's, that'd be pretty wild. Uh, talk, let's talk about, oh, go ahead. You were going to say something. Nope. Okay. So let's talk about the FDIC. So I'm very, very curious about this. Like, let's say a lot of banks start failing and you got money over the 250. First of all, I have a question. If you have like, you know, an LLC that has over 250 and then another LLC, and then you have your personal bank account, like, is it, is it everything that's tied to you in any way part of the 250 or is each one viewed separately? And then my next question would be like, what happens? Like if, if all goes to heck in a handbasket, like, do you have to like sue somebody to get that insurance to kick in? What's the process? Yeah. A good, good question. So it, it kind of depends on the account, right? So I'd say ultimately what you want to do, you know, up to those, those FDIC limits is um, not put it all in the same bank. Now I get why, why everyone does this because it's ease of operation. You have all your entities there. You can kind of funnel it back and forth or whatever you need to find all, all that stuff, sort of stuff, but they're going to, they're going to limit it depending on the type of account and who's on it. You know, meaning let's say my wife and I have an LLC we're just the only two members and it's LLC one. And then we have another for LLC two, which is a pretty common practice, especially for a lot of real estate folks out there. Right. They're going to look at that as same beneficial ownership. You don't get to double up your, your exposure effectively. Right. They're going to kind of look through to that end. Um, but, but if you, but if you do have, you know, different structures that are, that are really, truly different, you might get some additional, additional coverage and exposure there kind of by, by different entities, but they're ultimately going to look through to that. Um, in terms of proceedings and, and doing that, that's really where the FDIC comes in and they step in pretty quick because they want to ensure trust in the banking system because if they don't, they've got bigger problems on their hand. So they're going to come in and do things like this backstop to depositors. They did not bail out equity holders or bondholders. So that's wiped out. That's, that's gone. Right. Um, but backstop the, the deposit holders. Um, I'd be, I've, I've heard the word kind of bailout, you know, thrown around in the past couple of days. I'd, I'd caution around that. That's really not what's happening here. The FDIC will, will cover these costs just from, you know, fees and, uh, and things that they charge for the banks in the, in the years to come. So they'll, they'll get hold that way. Um, but these are the proceedings once they take conservatorship and they'll usually back in pretty quick. So right now there isn't nothing, isn't anything that has to happen because they're going to basically flush the bank and everyone will, they won't have really have a blip in their accounts. It's just more operational friction. Gotcha. So conservatorship. So essentially the bank now belongs to the FDIC. Is that fair to say? And if so, like what happens? Is it kind of like it raises it and then sends it off when it's 18 or what, what goes down? Yeah. So they're going to, I mean, so first they're looking to see if they can find a willing buyer to come in and take it, um, you know, either for, for, pennies on the dollar, right? Whatever they can get it for, or get someone to just buy it, take it over and do a transaction for a dollar, right? And get them to take it over. And, you know, hopefully it's a better capitalized bank and they can run it better and not make those mistakes. But that's, that's the ideal situation. Um, if not, they'll, they'll go down, you know, dissolving it. Um, with SVB, it's, it's, it's interesting. I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, however, I do believe it was a strong brand. And I think they had a solid operation short of the misstep on the investment of the balance sheet. And it seems to me that they're banking a community that's otherwise a little bit more challenging to bank for a lot of these other banks. I would imagine that we see another, another well, better positioned bank take it over and operate it, but keep that brand intact. Who knows? That's me throwing a dart at the board, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so essentially, in, in the case that nobody's willing to buy it, they'll take the monies in the in the accounts and essentially give them back to depositors and then just close the bank. But otherwise, for a small amount of money or a large amount of money, someone buys the bank and, and carries on. So right. I always feel like to get the best knowledge in the world, you have to ask the best questions. So I want to like transfer to you here for a second. Like, What are the questions that people should be asking to navigate this process? Yeah, I, I think some of those are going to be questions that um, I would I would continue to ask whenever we have these big events that I don't even know that, like, 
I can't answer, but these are the questions I ask. How did we get here? Why did this happen? How did, how did no one see it? Right. That this is it's kind of one oh one in terms of like what happened looking back on it. It wasn't, it was just a kind of a crazy alignment of things bad that, that happened, but how did we get there? Where was the oversight within the bank? on making this, right? And where were, where were they trying to unwind it along the way when they could versus just stepping into it? Um, you know, where was, where was the Fed? You know, everyone's been worried about the financials and the banks um, with raising rates. It's just, it's just crushing them. Where's the Fed kind of looking at that and saying, where's this threshold and limit? We're probably finding it right now saying, we can't raise rates to 10% because banks, we're gonna wipe out all of our banking system, right? So where, where are they, you know, there's responsibility, I think in a, in a lot of areas, similar to what happened to the financial crisis and other, and other times of stress, right? There's, there's a series of, of things that kind of went unchecked. So I think that's something that we all need to be looking at and asking. Um, you know, I think the other thing I was talking to my team about this right before you and I got on um, is especially the, the organizations. I'm less worried about the individual um, that has, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars at the bank. They're, they're going to be protected. But the, the guys that really have large operating accounts there, managing that better and them asking the questions and doing the right due diligence on their bank um, SVU might've been a great spot for them to be while they were, you know, being incubated and, and growing up. But what happens as they, you know, turn into these, you know, multi-billion dollar revenue companies and, and go on from there, um, in, and how to manage that. And so I think, you know, a lot of CFOs and treasuries, um, across the companies are going to be looking at how to better bolster up their policies around, around cash management and banking relationships. So I think those are some of the biggest things out there. Um, and then really just looking at how, we, you know, again, this all came about because of the tons of liquidity that came into the system and we've got an inflation battle in front of us. And so how do we, how do we get our way out of this? And I certainly have tons of thoughts around that, um, which will probably be a conversation for another day, but the Fed and the Treasury can only do so much. I think, you know, Congress has to do their part and get, get our budgets in line. And, you know, we can't just keep spending like drunken sailors um, and expect the Fed to have this magic button to just get us back into normal operating. Yeah, it reminds me like the economy. Exactly. It reminds me of like the, the, the difference between parenting and being a teacher, right? It's like, is it a parent's responsibility to raise their kids or is it the teachers? Uh, the teachers can Get do on. some, but it's not, they can't fix everything. Uh, <laughs> love it. So one of the things that I read, and I'm curious to get your take on it, is that when a bank puts uh, money into bonds, they, they can either mark them HTM or they can mark them A for S, right? Hold to maturity right. or available for sale. And the fact is that they marked a lot of these 10-year bonds as hold to maturity, right? Signaling to investors that these are going to be there for a long time. And as a result, regulation says they don't have to disclose uh, the losses that they were having on their balance sheet, right? Was yep. that a factor in why maybe some of the Absolutely. people were more comfortable when, than they should have been? Absolutely. And when, when you're in some sort of more normal interest rate environments, that, that probably doesn't come out and rear its ugly head, Right. Um, but absolutely it's terrible in this situation, right? So if we're in a normal, a normal interest, interest rate environment where you, you get paid that incremental amount to take on that extra year of risk, it was still a mismatch in liabilities, but when rates move, you're not going to be, the rates moving is what crushed the bank, right? You're not going to have that scenario play out in that type of environment. Your assets won't get just marked down by, by moving rates like that. Um, and so th that to me is something that's absolutely going to be looked at by regulators and probably changing, changing that regulation and or disclosing further. So there's, a, there's this thing and you've obviously with everyone doing a ton of research here, there's another metric that we look at for the banks when trying to assess, you know, their health and that's called the Texas ratio, right? And that's really a measurement of non-performing loans, right? They're, they're, um, the folks they loan money to really just not paying those loans and kind of servicing that debt. So you want to know if a bank has. Has, has a high Texas ratio or not if they have non-performing assets. So example of this is you typically see the credit card banks like Discover Bank and some of those, not to name anyone out, but those will typically have a higher one just because of the population they serve and kind of the, the type of debt it is, right? Credit card debt versus, you know, a, a, another bank that um, that's really not in that space. In fact, SVB, if you go look at their, look at their ratios on this at the end of the year, they had amongst the lowest. And that makes sense. They didn't have a credit issue. They didn't, they, they didn't have a credit issue at all. Um, they made a bad trade. And so, you know, that's something that, that we look at quite a bit. Um, but I think we need something like that to have more look through on these, you know, held maturity markings or do away with it. So there's better insight to say, what is the actual construct of that balance sheet? And what is that? What is that duration? Risk? Yeah. That, so essentially, that's not, that's not totally yeah, the credit card companies have higher Texas ratios, but they're 
interest rates are like through the roof, like 10, 20, 30%. So they can account right. for that Texas ratio. That makes a ton of sense. So yeah. then the due diligence process, like, like let's say I'm an emerging business owner, right? Or an emerging investor. My net worth is now getting to a place where I'm storing a lot more than 250K in the banks, let's say. So yeah. what is a reasonable due diligence for a person picking their bank? Yeah, I'd say one for, for, for our clients in terms of what we recommend, we, we honestly, unless they have a huge need to hold large, larger sums of cash, we, we honestly typically move them to go into the money market structure. So getting away from just the bank themselves, but now you're buying a money market, which it's underlying exposure. I mean, it's overnight liquidity. We did have some pressure on this. If, if you recall going back into 07, when, when there was, you know, there was talk about break, you know, breaking the buck. Um, and money markets not being valued at $1 anymore, being valued at 99 cents and 98. So there, there's risk there, but your, you know, your seven day paper is kind of the duration of this stuff, um, different risk profile then, but, you know, starting to go into things like that and picking up fixed income instruments of their own and keeping a liquid profile there, we can, we can do things and structure it. Um, other than that, if you are going to be looking at a bank, I would, you could quickly do a 15 minute scan. You go to the FDIC website, type in the bank and you can look at um like all their measurements they do a quick health check on it and give you those things again this wouldn't have come up because there isn't good look through so i think there's a regulatory misstep but you can you can get as much information out there just doing a quick five ten minute scan on the fdic website if someone would have been really savvy like they would have understood the whole to maturity bonds they would have understood what the bond rates were at is there visibility like does the bank have to show how much money it has and hold to maturity bonds to the public it, it reports quite a bit, but you don't have the full makeup of what that is and, and how risky it really is in terms of that duration risk. So we know it's a high quality asset, but we don't know what other risk there is in that asset. And so that's, yeah. that's the problem with it. So there needs to be, you know, another facet of transparency, probably the best way I can put that. Yeah. I mean, it'd have to be quite a bit, right? Because you, because the main problem is that they had capital needs to, otherwise they would have just held the maturity and they've been fine and they would have gotten the, the specified returns. And so it's like, in order to piece all that together, you'd have to understand that the bonds are now at a different value. And you'd have to understand that they had capital issues that would require them to sell those bonds at a loss. And, right. and even that's not necessarily a problem, right? It was only that with that happening, people got freaked out. That's right. And, and that was, that was the, the other misstep, right? They then signaled that out there to the street, which I guess in the case of, of Uber transparency, you know, you want to do that, but you're, Bankers know that they're in a, in a system of uh, of trust, and you know a message like that is going to spark concern. And so you want to, you kind of want to hold on to that until you can, can solve the problem and figure it out. So, absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right with that. It, it 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 was the second straw that really just broke it. So you have essentially only one percent or less of your clients' money in the financial. So tell me, like with people probably scrambling to figure out other ideas. I mean, you've mentioned money markets and, and treasury bonds, uh, you know, short-term that is, what are, what are some of the ways that you guys are investing that, you know, is potentially safer than what we're seeing there in the banks? Yeah. And let, and let me clarify when I, when I kind of gave that one percentage number, don't hold me to the exact number. It's For like, sure. I don't know the decimals on it, but in that ballpark, right. Um, that's equity in these, you know, financial, financial institutions, which was the larger one. So it's the equity side of it. Um, that where we would own, you know, own, like for instance, if we own Citibank or something like that, um, it, they just haven't been an attractive place to be. And, and so we haven't been in them for a while. Um, you know, really we're looking at, in fact, with, with a lot of our core equity strategies so public equity strategies, I mean, we've been, we've been upwards of 50, 60% cash, um, for well over a year now, just waiting for opportunities. So we've been heavy, um, you know, on, on energy, you know, pretty much all last year, um, heavy on some of the biotech um, spaces, but they're really, most of the other segments of the market, which kind of played last year was an ugly year in the market. It served us well to not be in, in a lot of those segments. And we're fine to say, listen, if it's not worth it, we're not just going to ride that train, you know, up and down and all over the place. Let, let's kind of sit out and, uh, and, and wait to see how that happens. So, you know, I'd say right now across the board, um, we are very optimistic on certain pockets of industrial real estate. So we do that kind of in the, on the private side. So not public REITs or anything of that nature, but, but private, private real estate, really good sound operators, you know, in the, in the industrial space, we very much like that. We think there's a massive supply imbalance. 
um, fixed income is actually more attractive. So high quality, I mean, treasuries, municipals, things of that nature, they're actually attractive now short term versus they haven't been attractive for well over a decade, right? It's been a terrible conversation around that for a long time. So, you know, there's some, some attractive things there. Excuse me, um, private credit is something that's really interesting. There's some really attractive yields in the private credit space. Um, it's a much bigger space than it used to be. Um, so, you know, places that just need mezzanine debt, um, you know, and other kinds of debt to flow through on the, on the corporate side. So that's an interesting space. And there are certainly, you know, pockets of the equity market that, that are attractive. We're a lot more, um, we're a lot more excited about the small cap space as a whole, not getting into industries, but smaller companies that have been sort of, you know, hammered, hammered uh, recently. And then looking at the international space, um, we're looking at environments setting up right now where, um, you know, the international markets can actually do quite well compared to the U.S. Um, and that's not necessarily an, an economy doing well. It's just it's its valuation has been beat up so much compared to the U.S. Um, U.S. is kind of back to fair-ish valuation, and we've been extremely overvalued for a number of years now. So we're kind of back to fair-ish value. I wouldn't say that we're extremely undervalued. So, so proceed from, with caution. I don't think we're through the woods yet, but we're getting closer. Love this. So let's talk about small businesses because that's a passion of mine. I have one and uh, you know, I'm around a lot of small business owners. Kind of give me the makeup. Like if you're evaluating a small business in terms of whether or not it makes sense to pour some money in, like what's kind of the lay of the land there? Small business. Um, the person or team running it is, I mean, almost everything. Um, almost everything. Um, so you really got to look at that, you know, look at, look at the business that they're in. Are, do you generally feel good about just kind of the sector? What are they? Are they, are they, you know, coming up with some new technology or something like that? Or is it, um, they've just kind of figured a, a better way to, you know, to skin the cat effectively. Right. Um, so I, I look at things of that nature and it's really, it's the team's ability to execute on small business. I mean, you can find the most boring business and you've got someone who can execute like a master go with them all day. I'll take, I'll take the boring businesses that can execute all day, every day. Um, and so that's, that's the biggest thing looking at that culture that they, that they embed in there. And then if you're really going to be doing due diligence and looking at them to, in terms of money to invest, do they have a track record of, of ever doing, you know, starting a business or running it before and selling it, you know, how do they manage and, and who is the team that they put around them? Who's their team advisors, you know, board and things of that nature. Um, but it's, it's so much about the, the team running it. You had mentioned to me on a different call that basically the due diligence to even check into these things is like 50 grand or something crazy like that, if not more. So like, what is, what is like the minimum capital provided to somebody that gets involved with you guys is it like 5 million bucks, 10 million bucks. Like, I mean, it's gotta be fairly yeah, substantial to justify even a $50,000 due diligence cost. Yeah, that, that's a good question. We've got clients across the spectrum. So we've got clients, you know, down in the $1 million sort of liquid investable with us, Mark. And I'd say that's probably really where we can start to add add our most value. Um, we've got some clients that that are smaller for whatever reason. They're just kind of starting out. And so we're helping them with a ton of things. Like, I love those clients. Guys are, yeah. hey, Mike, I'm starting off my business. I'm doing this. You know, help me get off the ground. But we're doing a ton of work over here. It's not the portfolio takes up 5% of what that relationship is. And we're doing all the other fun stuff to get them get them where they need to be and, and whatnot. But, you know, I'd say on average, um, you know, clients, um, clients that we're going after probably have five to 10 million um, liquid net worth to kind of start with us. And then it goes on up from there. Um, but again, clients that have interesting things going on um, that are smaller, we love working with those guys from the beginning. I'd rather, I'd much rather start laying the good foundation um, earlier on when they're younger and doing it versus kind of waiting for, for some of those opportunities to pass. And it's a little bit too late. So not to ask a question, I mean, you couldn't refuse to answer this question. Right. But it's kind of like some people become a political answer. Is that what I did? No, 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 <laughs> no. But like, so, so, uh, accountants sometimes become accountants so they can see what businesses work the best. Right. And, and you're yeah. kind of in almost a similar industry, right. Where you get to see all these amazing things. Like, is there things that you've seen over the last 15 years that like makes you like, man, I, I'm kind of like getting the itch. I'm getting tempted to go like do this business. Cause I could like go crazy with it. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I don't know that I've, thought actively about that. Um, so I, I like to get things running up. So it's interesting. I'll give you some context. So yeah. we have, um, we have my, myself and two other partners that really kind of run this at the, at the helm and the three of us make an amazing team, but we're all three so different. Right. Um, one, one of my partners is much more of like what I'll dub like the visionary, 
let's figure it out. He's big picture. He's out there. Um, my other partner, he's, he's an operator. Like he's just an operator. He's in it. He, he's on it. He keeps everyone organized. Like he's, he's just on it. Right. And I'm, I'm probably somewhere in between. I'm probably a little bit more strategy and, and, and figuring, you know, bridging the gap a little bit, but like, I love to get things from nothing, take it and get off, get it off the ground and go from there. There's a lot of things out that, and, you know, some of the boring, you know, I call our, our industry somewhat boring. It's not like we came up with some new service model or, or technology or anything like that, right? We just take care of people and we do it really well. Um, it just so happens to be that we also manage their money and kind of financial aspects, but it's really just taking care of people. Um, but, you know, I think if I were to look forward, um, sounds kind of cliche, but I'm super excited. And I don't know that I'm, I want to be in the businesses, but I'm super excited to see how AI is going to transform so much. And I think we were actually just chatting about this the other day, but so much of what's going to be out there and things that we're all doing, it's going to be so cool to see how that just takes off. I, I really do think that that's kind of like the next the next internet, right? <laughs> um, in terms of how that changes things. In fact, we've had a lot of clients asking us, how do I get into AI? And that's kind of like, I almost view it as like, that's asking the question, you know, back in the, back in the nineties, how do I, how do I invest in the internet? It's like, man, there's going to, I don't know, we're in its infancy. There's going to be so much coming out from this big companies, small companies, companies that we don't even know are going to you know, be on, on the, on the page in a few years. So I think that's really interesting out there. Um, and then, um, you know, I think, yeah, there's just a lot of opportunities out there. I could go on for, for quite a bit. But. Yeah, well, I mean, AI is a great example because what was it was Microsoft that was trying to buy OpenAI, right? For like, was Correct. it like 40 or 50 billion or something? Yeah. Which is yeah. so wild to think. I mean, and maybe that's some pie in the sky evaluation, but it's hard to imagine. I mean, that might be like stealing it at this point when we think about yeah. what it can do. What's your, what's your take on that valuation? Like, let's say they would buy OpenAI for $50 billion. Like, who do you think is losing that deal? Uh, probably, probably OpenAI. I, I, if I, were to, I don't know. There's no way to value it. They're just saying, you know, they're not, it hasn't monetized yet. It, they're just saying, we're going to throw a number out there that we think is in, enticing. Um, you know, I think it'll be interesting, right? Because OpenAI and like, you know, places like that that'll pop up, they're going to have to figure out how to build these big ecosystems to make it work, or they're going to have to figure out how to monetize, right? They franchise that out or kind of license it out to the Microsoft or how are, you know, they're going to have to figure that out. But these other big companies, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, they've got a ready and willing ecosystem that already exists, customers that exist and ways to monetize. So it's going to be very attractive for those companies to try and make up big offers and snatch it up because they can plug and play right away. Yeah. Well, then, then, uh... OpenAI, I'm not even sure. It's not a public company, right? It's a private. No. Yeah. So at some point, maybe they they monetize and then go public, and then the thing like goes off the rails. Yeah. No, I meant like they're gonna have to figure out how to monetize their customer base, right? They're gonna have to figure out how to make money off this in in a in a big format. Yeah. So. So, t talk to us about the private wealth management space, like. You got the three people, right? You're kind of describing the visionary. You're, you may be the integrator if we're talking about traction. You got the operator. So, like, is that all like a shop like that takes? Uh, like, what does it look like to build a private wealth management company? Yeah, um, it's interesting. So, uh, I think a lot of private wealth management, I, I tell people this all the time because this is truly the, the core of our existence. It's it's a relationship business and relationships are a one-on-one -on -one sport. No matter what you try to do, you can't, you can't really scale up, you know, a one-on-one -on -one relationship. So for us, you know, we've gone down the path of bigger clients, higher quality, white glove, let's really go deep versus there's other firms and companies out there that, you know, like the robo advisors, right there. That's not a relationship business. It's a commodity. Um, and so they've, they've made one call and, and they're going to get sort of priced as such. Right. Um, you know, so, so that's the direction that we've gone. And what that means is that, you know, we really, we can't, I can't just run this and just say, okay, I'm going to pluck myself out of the seat and go hire Mike version 2.0 and pay him something smaller. And I'm just going to be the business owner and take all that. And, and hopefully I can scale up and, and do that, you know, copy and paste, you know, a hundred times. It, it just doesn't work that way. So, you know, all of us really have to have a ton of experience and expertise in our field, not only on the relationship side, now I would actually say our, our business is probably more of a psychological business, <laughs> um, therapy business, more so than everything else. I think table stakes is being good at the numbers and the economics and the planning and the portfolio and all that kind of stuff. You have to knock it out there. That's the table stakes, but the, the folks who are really good at it are really 
no, psychologist and therapist. So out of the three partners, like who plays psychologist to the clients? We all do. So we all run with our own clients and, and we have several others on the team who are advisors as well, all kind of running with our own clients. Um, we have a blast with it because we also work on, on several clients together, which is, which is awesome. Um, just for our own, you know, our own fun. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really what we all do. Um, just one-on-one -on -one with our clients. Cool. And so essentially we're there for the good times and the bad times and everything in between and often know the good and the bad before anyone else does. Love it. And, and probably play therapist to each other, right? As, as you oh, yeah. have to decompress from decompressing your clients. Oh Yeah. Absolutely. The best of the, 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 high, the best highs and we've all, we've all cried on each other's shoulders. I mean, all of it, it's, it's all there. Yeah. And essentially the power of coming together is to present a bigger name, a bigger brand, kind of like when attorneys come together, would it be similar to that? Absolutely. That was a big part of us coming together originally. So again, we all left um, a big firm, right? Um, and so we came together instead of all of us, cause we're all in different cities. So I'm in Southern California. I've got a team in Dallas, a team in Atlanta, team in Palm Beach and a team in New York. Um, and we could have all just gone off, had our, had our nice lives and did, did our own thing. But we really said there's a ton of value to having all of us who have slightly different expertise um, and perspectives and way we, ways that we do things. So coming together and saying, it's not about the name on the back of the jersey, it's the name on the front of the jersey. And so we just always put that out there and we just lean into each other. And if there's something that comes up, you know, if I've got a, you know, someone who wants to start working with me and I think they're really going to be better suited with one of my, one of my other teammates. I'm going to say, let's, let's, let's just do that. That's right. So, yeah. um, yeah. So when you're saying different expertise, is this generally like, Hey, you know, Mike understands the energy sector better and, you know, another partner understands this other sector. Is it, is it really like industry specific or probably less on the portfolio management side and more on the, on the planning side. So um, like my partners will, will bring me in often on some of the big heavy hitting estate planning type things where we need to, we've got a, you know, someone's worth, I'm just going to make a number, right? A hundred million dollars. They're going to have, if they die today, they're going to have a huge tax bill due to uncle Sam. So we need to figure out ways to strategize to get that, get that as low as possible or zero that out. And so we'll, we'll start doing things before we, before they start racking up billable time with their attorney. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll do a lot of that stuff. I get involved in a lot of tax things with my clients, although I don't want to advertise that out because I hate dealing with taxes and in fact, <laughs> that might drop me time of the year now. Um, but you know, and then we've got folks where, you know, we're doing big insurance things. Um, and so I'll bring in one of my partners there, um, who, who, you know, that's just kind of their second language. So there's different things where we just, people have different expertise. And so we let them just lean into it. That makes total sense. Now there's a term family office. And so your private wealth management, how, how is that similar or different from family office? Yeah, good question. So family office, um, means something different to every family to be, to be perfectly honest. Um, but generally, so there's a family office and where our, our technical name is, we're, we're a registered investment advisor. So family offices manage the wealth of one or a couple or a few families together. Typically you'll see a few, like where there was a couple founding partners that sell their business. And so they kind of link up their families together to make a family office. And that family office will sort of handle all the finance and investing function of, of those families. Right. So. Um, all the investments, but also all the taxes, they'll, they'll kind of hire in, you know, in those internal folks, they may come up with some sort of investment strategy or fund or something like that, that they'll kind of export out and, and bring other people into it. It all kind of depends on the family, the size of it. Um, we're a little bit different. So we're registered with the SEC. So I, I specifically report to the SEC. We're audited by the SEC. Everything that we do is, is visible to the SEC. Um, and typically our families. We, I mean, there, there are families that, that kind of could be family offices of their own, but they don't really want to be involved in hiring their CIO and, you know, kind of running their own portfolio. So they'll kind of export that to us and say, just take it over. But I'd say generally speaking, our families are probably a notch below the, having the ability to sort of start their own family office. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's all kinds of arguments on where that level to start. And I'm not going to go into that because I don't want to offend <laughs> anyone, but right. um, obviously the, 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 the bigger, the bigger the family is, the more viability for family office and that does mean different things to different folks yeah and like i think a quick google search says that family office generally happens around like maybe like 50 million or 100 million or something like that so i mean everybody family can decide for themselves so being regulated by the sec i mean the sec oftentimes has a, I mean, a very strong feeling associated to it like they have a lot of regulatory power like how does that 
like feel like, I mean, you know, being in real estate, we're legislated by the DRE. Obviously there's, you know, we, we do things right, but like, what's it like? I mean, how many people do you need to make sure that things are going as planned? A lot, <laughs> a lot. And you need a strong, you need a strong culture, uh, to be able to do that. Um, as I am the one for our firm that, that is ultimately responsible to the SEC. And I'm the one that, that, you know, handles all the reporting and communication and they, they come hunting for me for when there's audits or when we, we fail to supervise or make any missteps. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's a lot of weight and responsibility that I, I, I wake up every day with that. Um, and that to me is what keeps me honest with my clients. And in fact, that's, that's, that's how we came up with our name veracity capital. I mean, we're, it's ultimately seeking that truth and transparency that quite frankly, we can't, we, we chose, settled on that name because that there just wasn't a ton of that that existed in our, in our, in our industry. And I said, that's, that's crazy. We need to do away with that. So, um, there's a lot, there's absolutely a lot of weight on it, but we've, again, I've got an awesome team around me. We've implemented, I mean, all kinds of systems I and mean, it's probably overkill, but all kinds of systems and checks and balances and double checks. Um, so that ultimately when I do have to you know, answer the sec, and provide things and do an audit, I can wrap it up with a bow and hand to them and, and you know, everything's all good. So talk to me um, about, you're in Newport Beach area. So, you know, you're close to celebrities all the time and you hear about these celebrities that hit it big and all of a sudden their money's gone, their manager's stolen it. Like I had an interview uh, within the last couple months where someone lost lots of millions of dollars it was taken. So like, People go to jail in that kind of situation. Like, you know, what happens when wealth just kind of disappears? Uh, lawsuits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you see if there's anything that's recoverable, which, you know, oftentimes it's not if they just spent it on, you know, lavish, lavish trips and things. Um, you know, the, the sports entertainment industry uh, you know, or, or kind of segment of the market, um, it's hard. So, so there, there are definitely, you know, firms like us that only serve that segment of the market because they've, 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 they've kind of figured out, they've made that their niche. Um, we, we do have some of those folks, but we have not made that our niche at all. And specifically because of some of that, it's hard working with the business managers we have found is difficult because some of those things, they have their hand in every single pot along the way. Um, I, I have found it challenging and difficult, and I never really have a direct line to, the client, they're, they're, you know, the agents and the business managers are, are kind of always in the way. Uh, but there are absolutely firms out there that specialize in that, that, that you know, don't mind that or have found ways to kind of do it efficiently. Um, we've typically gone towards business owners, corporate executives, you know, you know, folks of that nature that sort of speak our language um, versus dealing with the, you know, the, the, um, the business manager all the time. So what, do you, what do you, is most passionate for you about wealth management? Um, I, you know, it's a great question. It's really when you have someone who wasn't, you know, they were going to be stressed or challenged in something in their path in front of them. Mike, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it X, Y, Z, my, my finances are, are challenging or whatever it is. And we come up with a plan and figure out how to navigate that path forward. That to me is, is everything it's, um, and that happens at all, all wealth scales. I mean, I, I, at some point I want to write a book and, and take names out, but I've, I've had conversations with folks that are, you know, 50 plus million dollar net worth who I had to have conversation with saying, you're going to be bankrupt in a few years. We have to change something now while we still can. So it's crazy. That's crazy to hear, right? Someone that has a net worth of that size, that's going, you know, on the path to, to dwindle it all down um, for, for any, for any reason. Right. And so, you know, being able to figure out ways to navigate that, you know, having someone, like I said, the younger folks, you know, start their business, figure it out and then watch them grow throughout the years and sell that business. It, it, that's awesome. Um, to be able to work with our clients, kids, you know, as, as they get older and become adults or as our clients, you know, unfortunately pass off. And then we kind of work with, with, with their kids that they're on. I mean, really taking care of that, that second and third generation is, is awesome. It's a lot of fun. What would you say, like if wealth, and it does, but wealth has principles. So what principles would you say are the Mike Mess principles of wealth? Uh, keep it conservative. And what I mean by that is, you know, mind your spending. <laughs> There's only so many knobs you can turn, right? The, the financial equation isn't really that complicated, right? You've got money coming in and money going out and you make your money try to work with work for you along the way somewhere. Um, the one that you can control the most is your expenses, right? The money going out. 
So control that as well as you can. Don't have lifestyle creep take over on you. Um, so manage that. You can only turn the income dial so much, right? You can only do so much to, to get more in without actively kind of creating something. And then, and then let someone else kind of manage. If you don't want to be in the day-to-day of managing, whether it's a real estate portfolio or managing your own sort of diversified portfolio or managing, you know, you need to exit your small business at some point. How do you get out of that, right? But your whatever your pool of capital is, <clears throat> early on, you're going to be very involved. You're going to be doing 100% of it, right? Typically, if, if you're creating something, you know, real estate and small business, right? Um, at some point, you may want to start to take a back seat to that. And you've got to figure out how to do that, right? If you're a small business, how do I get out of the active role, hire a CEO, hire an operator, hire a manager, whatever it is, so I can kind of get out or on real estate, get to hire the team to run it, or do I kind of get out and do do something kind of, you know, truly where I'm not spending, you know, all my hours of the week doing it. Um, and then, you know, hire the teams around it. But yeah, I think the principle is just be mindful and conservative around it. Always have buffers around you. Always have an escape hatch plan, right? Um, you know, things of that nature. It's really not, it's not a really complicated philosophy. <laughs> Keep it simple. Love it. What is Mike Mess's vision for the next 12 to 18 months? Uh, in terms of what? The economy, me personally. You personally and veracity? You know, for me, it's, it's, there's a lot of, I think, fun things on, on the horizon. We're, we're doing a lot of really cool, great things within Veracity and the team. And so that to me is really exciting. Um, I think outside of our walls, I think, I think the world is in a challenging place right now. And I think that we need to, we need to reassess that. I think we need to reassess our leadership, both here domestically and abroad. I think we're, you know, we've got a lot of just global issues. I think we've got a lot of political spectrum issues here of, of, you know, people not seeing eye to eye. And I don't think we're really all as far apart as maybe we're all, you know, kind of made out to be. Um, so I think we really do need to assess that and, and kind of bring some of the goodness back into the world. So I'm hoping that that's something that we can all spread, spread a little bit, uh, a little bit each day. Um, I think we're going to work, work through it. I have a philosophy that the pendulum always swings and I think we're probably swinging a little bit too far, you know, one way and hopefully we kind of swing back the other way soon, but the pendulum always swings. Love it. Mike Mess, thank you so much for giving us insight into the banking industry, the private wealth industry, personal wealth finances. Guys, for those of you listening, like you probably heard something today that you can implement or that you can think about, write it down, share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable to take action. Freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day, before you know it, you're going to be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next one.